This is the War Room Roundtable podcast, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant businessmen and women on the planet, hear their stories, and get the most important business lessons they've learned on the road to success, and get exclusive advice on how to implement their successes into your life and business. The War Room Roundtable is brought to you by your hosts, Jason Miller, CEO of Strategic Advisor Board, and Philip Llanos, CEO of Own the Rhythm, and former podcast host for Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine. Welcome to the War Room, Dr. David Gruder. How are you doing? I'm happy, thank you. How are you? Doing good. Hey, I, I like that answer. I, you have specifically made it a point, I think, the entire time we've been talking prior to recording, like specific language. And I think that's an important distinction to make uh, in the way that you've presented yourself. Uh, and I want to get to the root of this. And the way that I want to go there is by first asking, do you yourself come from a family of entrepreneurs? No, I don't. Okay. I come from a father who was a corporate man and a mother who was a um, thwarted uh, uh, reporter, uh, news, uh, magazine writer, but gave all of that up to be a stay-at-home 1950s, 1960s type mom. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is definitely a different context. <laughs> Oh yeah. So how, how do you think that shaped uh, your decision to take the path that you have today? Well, it's a great question that you're asking, and uh, I can unpack the answer in two ways. There are some incredibly valuable gifts that I got from both of my parents that I've been able to repurpose as an entrepreneur. Uh, and then the other part of it, and I can go into those. And then the other part of it is that I've uh, I've basically had an entrepreneurial kind of attitude for virtually my entire career. I don't know where I come by it from, uh, but initially I was doing it by the seat of my pants and then decided it was a pretty good idea for me to learn how to do it on purpose. So we can unpack any of that. All of it, please. <laughs> Let's dive in, first of all, with just uh, because it's part of the narrative here, like how you think maybe some of that it was influenced uh, from your parents. Sure. Well, my father really derived uh, his sense of, of career security through a corporate kind of structure, which makes a lot of sense because my parents grew up during the, the Great Depression and then World War II. And at that point in time, people believed that their best pathway to security would be through working for a company for their entire career so that they could retire with a great retirement at the end of their career. And that is, in fact, what happened for my father. He was very fortunate that way, as was my mom because of that. Um, so my dad taught me about the value of security and about the um, sacrifices that had to be made in order to derive security through working for someone else. And I learned through watching him 
that I didn't like the sacrifices. I wasn't wired to make the sacrifices that he was wired to make. I, uh, I, I'm a pioneer by, by temperament, whereas my dad was a court, uh, you know, a company man by temperament. I see. And okay. my mom was a published poet. <clears throat> and so she was, she had a Mavericks mentality, even though she didn't live that until her the final decades of her life. Uh, after my dad died, she kind of freed herself up to live more in alignment with how she wanted to live. But she was a free spirit. If she, she told me when I was in my twenties that if she had felt the freedom to follow her own path uh, in defiance of her parents' expectations of her, she would have uh, moved to Greenwich Village. Um, which at that time in New York, I was born and raised in New York, as were my parents. That was kind of the hotbed of innovation and avant-garde and out of the ordinary. And back in the 19, late 40s and, and uh, 1950s, it wasn't the hippies. That was the 1960s. They were called the beatniks in the 50s. But my mom, had she moved to Greenwich Village, she would have been a bohemian. Uh, is what they were called before the hippies and before the beatniks. So she had that kind of free spirit mentality. And I got that from her. In fact, as a side trip, and this could be another little story if you're interested, my parents sent me to Woodstock. And so that informed my free spirit <laughs> mentality uh, as well. I basically, in a, in some ways, even though I, have been employed early in my career and I did well being employed. I'm really basically by temperament unemployable <laughs> as is, as is true of so many entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, glad that the self-awareness is there. <laughs> uh, I'm sure anyone listening who can relate is chuckling right now. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So, so we understand that. And then, uh, just before, 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 uh, we, we go any further, I also want to tie in, uh, you mentioned there was a, a, another way that this could have been unraveled and we covered the stuff with the parents. Right. But then you yourself have always flied by the seat of your pants in terms of, uh, being an entrepreneur. And you said that you eventually made the effort to try to learn this on purpose. Correct. That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. See, in now, my uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. In my training program, so my my uh, my training is as a psychologist. So my doctorate's in clinical and organizational development psychology. And in grad school, they there's a kind of unspoken expectation or partly spoken expectation that if you're really going to be successful you're going to be in private practice. So kind of like the gold standard, uh, even though a lot of other people pursue academic careers or work in clinics and things like that. Uh, there was this kind of message that, you know, if you're really going to be at the top of the game, you're going to be in private practice. But they provided absolutely no training in how to be an entrepreneur. I don't say that as a criticism, because if you know uh, those those of your our listeners who are familiar with the demands of 
graduate school and becoming a healthcare professional or a psychologist or uh, an attorney or uh, an accountant, you you already know that it takes everything that you can muster to just learn the technical trade, you know, to learn what you're supposed to learn in your profession. There's no bandwidth left over to learn how to be an entrepreneur on top of that. And those courses aren't offered as a result of that. So there's no implied criticism here. It's just the reality that there I was in 1982 with my doctorate, um, already being self-employed because I wanted to do the private practice and independent consulting route, but just making it up as I went. And fortunately I didn't, I did well enough to support myself, but not well enough to really create a flourishing entrepreneurial business. So I needed to get training after I was done with my training, my training first began in how to be a business person. Okay. This is the part of conversation where I want to also turn it over to Jason, who has now had ample time to collect what's been developing in this narrative. And uh, I know that he wants to chime in and uh, and I'm grateful that he let me steal the conversation for a bit. (laughs) It's always interesting to me. And there again, like you said, no criticism, right? Because I'm educated. I got my MBA, all this stuff, right? But but in reality, it, it didn't really teach me how to run a business, right? Which is really seems counterintuitive right (laughs) but but you look at like i worked with this would have been back in 2016 or 17 something like that but he was one of the most renowned uh heart surgeons in the world he did a very specialty type of heart surgery and he wanted to break free and do, he was tired of the hospital life and all this kind of stuff. Right. And there's literally zero programs or support or anything in the medical field to help doctors do their own thing. It's like, well, we'll get you 95%, but after that can't help you. You have to figure the rest of it out. Yes. So, so it really makes you kind of wonder why the system is programmed that way, or is it just programmed to just really put you in a hospital where they want you, right? So they can have control of you and so on and so forth. But because you now look at trades, right? The, the trades like plumbing and mechanics and all this stuff, that system is set up to employ people, right? In an entrepreneurial type of sense where you know, traditional college really isn't. So it's how I typically don't ask questions, but what was your, what was your plug-in? How did you bridge that gap there? I'm really curious being in the doctor field, right? That's a whole different like way of thinking. Now, all of a sudden you are like a a switch to a switch now, because you've been in this academia world for so long. How did you make that transition from academia and then all of a sudden, well, I guess I'm going to start my own business? <laughs> That's yeah. a worthwhile question to ask right there. It's a great question. And to frame my answer to that question, what you said, I think, is really well articulated in that 
the apprenticeship model, if you're learning a trade, you are learning a trade under the tutorship of somebody who is in business themselves. They've got their own business. Mm -hmm. Whereas the structure of academic training and professions is run by academics, right? And academics are employed. So they think with an employee's mentality. And there, there are two fundamental monetization formulas that exist. You either create money through time that you devote, which is the employee's monetization formula, or you create money through value that you provide, which is the entrepreneur's monetization formula. So that's, I think, why professionals come out of their training with a mindset that's an employee's mindset because they've been trained by academics who are employees. So, you know, no harm, no shame, no fault, no foul. That's just how it is. So I recognized that and I sought mentorship from professionals in my field in psychology who had flourishing private practices. They were doing it by the seat of their pants too. They didn't have any formal training, but their practices were flourishing. And so I studied what they did in order to flourish. And then I developed my own version of that, which actually went far beyond the mentorship that I got from those people because I ended up being a maverick in the psychology field in the 1990s because I went beyond what they knew how to teach me. The student became the master. <laughs> well, ultimately, I I ultimately did. Now we're talking, we're recording this in 2022. And ultimately, I did become enough of a master so that now people, professionals in the professions who want to make the shift into uh, functioning as an entrepreneur seek out my mentorship as a business development person because I know how to help them with that in a way that doesn't run afoul of their licensure restrictions and their ethics restrictions and the professions codes that limit what they can do and how they can market and advertise in much more restrictive ways than non-professionally oriented businesses have to deal with. Oh, such valid points. We always forget there's these levels of compliances. I yeah. think I even heard um, uh, some some uh, therapists, if you will, have a cap on how much they can actually earn or, or or something along those lines, how much they can actually charge, or some, something related to that, and I could it could be an error that I that I that I heard. No, about. no, there there's a cap, and there there are two caps. One cap is in terms of how much you can charge, which is based on what the insurance companies will allow, or what Medicare will allow, or what Medicaid will allow, or things along those lines. So regulatory agencies. And then there's the other cap, which is the employee's cap, because if you're in private practice providing a service, the only way you can make more money is either to raise your prices, 
which there are caps on, unless you're operating independently of mismanaged carelessness, I mean, managed care, um, <laughs> or, or work more hours. But you can't, those are the only two ways you can make more money, raise your fees or work more hours. And I wasn't interested in having to raise my fees or work more hours. I wanted more from less time invested. Yes. Which yes. set me off on a completely different path from the mentors that I had who were in private practice, who were locked into that slave mentality that I just described. Yeah. And, so in the and, 1990s, I developed products. So you went the product route, which there's no re no regulation against. Uh, you became a business essentially. You productized what you were doing. That's that's where that that's going to go. Because what I was going to ask is because you you're fundamentally in this point in the narrative, right? There's uh there's something that a lot of consultants will run into that they can relate to in what you're talking about, where uh, the work that you do involves you being there, talking to the people, understanding them, diagnosing them, right? As consultants often have to do, they have to be there, they have to diagnose, and uh, that expertise, uh, time sort of combo for money, that's really hard to step away from and scale up because there's only one of you, right? So, and that's what people are going there for. And so I was going to ask, how did you break away from that? But you answered that, and that is you began to create products. Is this accurate? Ba yes, exactly. And the kinds of products that I started creating were what's technically called psychoeducational resources. So I started giving seminars and then started to record those. And those turned into, now remember, this was the 1990s, turned into a tape of the month club. <laughs> and by the time I wrapped up doing that in the in 1998, there were over 60 titles in the tape of the month club, which meant that when people became members, they would get a tape, a cassette each month back then. And that meant that the lifespan of those particular uh, customers of mine was a five-year lifespan just with that product. Wow. None of my colleagues were doing this at that time. Yeah, that is pretty maverick for its time. Uh, most people were, <laughs> some people still aren't doing that. <laughs> yeah, right. Got all um, the technology in the world to do it and still not doing it. Yeah, I know, right? Got it. So there was a there was a willingness to adopt new technologies to expand and create products and services that hadn't been thought of uh, previous to the direction that you were taking the idea of a private practice to, uh, or hadn't been used in my profession yes. prior to then. Yes. Solutions that existed outside, and you brought them in, which is as entrepreneurial as it gets. So the the nucleus of this is. For, Fundamentally, beyond beyond the uh, the idea of saying to yourself, "I'm going to do something different. I'm going to break the model that they that they told me to do. I'll find ways around it." What would you say to someone who is in the consulting arena uh, beyond those basic issues that they should always keep back of mind when considering how to make a move? Now, I know what I'm asking is abstract. But it's these abstract principles that I believe create the potential. They make 
potential into potency, right? And so I, I'd, I'd love to sort of dig deep if I could, and just because it'd be a wasted opportunity if I didn't ask someone of your caliber of thinking this question. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, one of my superpowers is translating the abstract into step-by-step-by-step procedures, uh, because otherwise, you know, the abstract falls into a category that I call true but not useful. And <laughs> so one of the things that I that I do is I help my clients identify their impact mission. What is the impact that they're called to have in the world? And then I teach them about these two ways of monetization that there's the monetization by time, which means you either have you have to raise your fees or work more hours, or there's monetization by value, which is where you create um, semi-passive revenue stream type resources. And I help them right match their impact mission with the range of ways of monetizing that that are available that match their objectives and match their temperament. So, you know, some people are much better at writing books than they are at giving keynotes. Other people can't write to save their lives, but they're great giving keynotes, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. <laughs> Valid point. Okay. So that's the work that you're doing now, which is eventually what we were going to get to is what are you, what it's are you doing? one now? of many hats that I wear. <laughs> One of right. many hats. Right on. Okay. So, so then the the most logical question to ask now is like, what do you want the listeners to know about your current goals, like what you're working on and what you're doing specifically? Mm. Right. Well, back to the abstract, where where my heart is, and this this really got fully birthed into consciousness for me when I was at Woodstock in 1969, I'm, I'm fundamentally a futurist. And so I'm always looking at what is the future of the business terrain? What is the future of humanity? What is the future of self-development? What is the future of education? What is the future of governance? And so one of the things that kind of is the, the centerpiece from which I decide what hats I wear and don't wear is about the future of humanity and what that means in terms of business and self-development and uh, and government and citizenship and things along those lines. And so my free resource that kind of outlines that version of the future that I envision uh, in contrast to a version of the future that's gathering momentum that I consider to be quite negative for humanity. Uh, I, I unveil all of that through revisioninghumanity.com. Okay, right on. Were you alluding to artificial intelligence and the, the stance that most people take on it? or Well, Yes and no. Without that, giving away too much, obviously. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, this is a free resource that I that I just mentioned. So there's nothing that I'm that I'm giving away. I'm giving it away. Um, <laughs> the it's not about AI per se, because technology itself, all technologies, are neutral. They can be used on behalf of elevating us. They can be used on behalf of imprisoning us. So. 
I am actually very pro AI. I am against some of the ways that I see AI being used. So basically, uh, do you want me to go into those details? Or <laughs> It sounds like it'd be a whole can of worms, right? <laughs> it would. That's why I was asking. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, Episode before... two. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, well, before I take it any further, because I have a habit of doing this, I want to make sure Jason gets uh... in and uh, chimes in. Great. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot to unpack in the AI thing. I, I see in... Uh, a video yesterday, and I'm not going to deep into it, but I seen a video yesterday. And there was a whole warehouse full of robots doing push-ups like soldiers, right? And it's a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Cyborg army is being yeah, developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just weird stuff. But, but no, I, you know, at the end of the day, I always look at it look at it like this. And, and, and I kind of consider myself a futurist too, a little bit because I'm always looking out to the, what's the next print I can leave. Right. And, and then it's just trying to connect the dots to get to the, to the print. Right. So, or who, who can I do things today that there'll be a, an effect for them? Maybe not today, Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe it's not till next week or two months from now, right? And and we need to focus more on that kind of stuff rather than the instant gratification model of, well, we got to have all this today. Unfortunately, that's the world we've kind of programmed into um, lately, anyway, is this instant gratification model. And But guess what? We can change it. It doesn't, there is nothing permanent, right? When it comes to, uh, well, if you could ask a dinosaur, they would tell you there's nothing permanent, right? <laughs> so, so, so yeah. the, you know, the, the idea of all of that, of like really leaving a footprint is really what we need to focus on. For sure. Totally, totally agree. As business people, if we're building for the present, by the time what we've built is built, it will already be out of date. Yeah. We've got to be building for the future, but not simply for that. We've got to be building for the future with it in our minds, what we think the future after that future will be, so that what we build for the future is a stepping stone toward the future beyond that. Wow. Whatever you think is about to happen, think further. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Some call that a contingency plan, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I call it master planning. Yeah. yeah. I was trained in master planning, which is building 50 to 100 year plans, out okay. of which the near term strategic plan ideally grows. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I've heard, you know, I've never had the opportunity to, to be able to, to uh, inquire about this because I have heard that major corporations and major enterprises, et cetera, they themselves do have these kinds of plans, whether it goes according to plan is a different story, right? You see a company. You expect that down. it won't go according to plan. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you see companies shut down all the time. What is it? If I could reach into, into the, the mind that I'm, that I have the, the pleasure of speaking to what is it about 
that style of thinking that while enterprises move slow and they don't innovate as much because they have to establish a certain level of you know uh, uh, credibility, they have to keep it all that. So they're not like startups which can are lean and can move and create a new product tomorrow uh, today. Uh, what what is what what is in between that chasm that that kind of planning that kind of thinking. Uh, a, a individual proprietor or small business owner, maybe even a startup entrepreneur, right? Consultant. What can they borrow from that kind of thinking as a fundamental principle that they should be starting to do today after this conversation? Great. Two very specific things. One draws from Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. Uh, and it's a, it's, based on it, but it's not identical. So what he said was begin with the end in mind is one of the seven principles. And I think he almost got it right. Begin with the best possible end in mind. And what that means on a, on a uh, boots on the ground level is you begin with a vision that you know is going to be modified and is going to be expanded on or is going to have unexpected twists and turns in the road, but you still begin with a vision of what you think you would like your enterprise to be, to look like and to operate like when it's all grown up. So you begin with a, a vision that's out in the future, and then you reverse engineer back to the here and now in order to build a best guess pathway between where you are now and that full actualization. So that's part one. Part two that has to go along with it is what, uh, what I call nimbility, which is the ability to, uh, to adjust and pivot as the realities of the world unfold while we're busy building toward what we want the business to be when it's all grown up. Uh, because especially now when we're living in the midst of a climate where there is a chronic perpetual parade of upheavals, one upheaval to the next upheaval to the next upheaval that I think is going to continue to be happening for the foreseeable future. If we don't develop the muscles to be able to look at every next and next and next upheaval through the eyes of what opportunity does this upheaval present to me to propel even better toward building my business to what I want it to be when it's all grown up, even though I might be doing that differently from what I originally envisioned. If we don't have those nimbility skills, then we're going to sink just as many businesses have because they didn't have nimbility skills and they went out of business in this climate over the past few years of perpetual upheavals. And you're referring to like COVID and things of that nature, unforeseen events like that? COVID, supply chain disruptions, um, economic ups and downs, employment ups and downs, uh, you name it. COVID right. was just one symptom. Right. The, mm. the, the way the workforce was damaged because of, 
I've interviewed a few people uh, across across the years through COVID who said that uh, the unemployment was one of the the unemployment benefits was one of the single most uh, debilitating factors for small businesses across the board. All of them that own small businesses yes. told me my people didn't want to come back to work. They were okay without it, and their business could no longer run. Exactly what they ended up becoming um, victims of is entitlement disorder. Yeah. You know, this this notion of, uh, oh, goody, I'm being I'm getting something for nothing. So I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to be productive anymore in order to generate revenue. And that is um, that I I can't even begin to go down that rabbit hole unless we have another half hour (laughs) about the psychological implications of that mindset, not only on individuals, but on society. Yeah. It, it, that's dangerous it's very dangerous no yeah doubt. oh yeah i mean th- there's there's a difference between uh something one would call a meritocracy right where like you know because uh, everyone starts from a different vantage point so it'd be hard to measure against things like that but you can't just go through life not providing value at all like that <laughs> that simply right. just isn't a model that will ever work right like, that's <laughs> right but look what was reinforced over the past couple of years yeah whether that was done on purpose or not is a debate, right? We could we could come down on either side of that. But regardless of whether it was done on purpose or not, the impacts are the same. Yes. I don't know of anyone who uh, is a billionaire, but I can imagine if they had an agenda, it would never be one to discourage people from working. If anything, it'd be working more. Like that, I don't think they have any kind of and this is again conjecture, and I know this is like way beyond the scope of almost everything we're talking about here. But I can't imagine anyone who believes in productivity and in building a future thinking that removing one of the social structures, like the middle class, would ever make any sense. You know, like it's like so necessary to the fundamental fabric of capitalism and 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 being able to build and move society forward. And yet, that's like pretty much everywhere you look, everyone is trying to fight against that. And, and, and I know this is like political and it involves like socioeconomics and all these dangerous topics that can lead to things. But it, I, the reason why I bring all this, all this up, because I, I know that not only do you have a background in understanding the psychology of people, right, but also leaders in business and you're working with them. And so what can we arm business owners with uh, to sort of navigate. I just keep in mind when dealing with people that they're hiring, for example, right? Uh, well, should they be looking for any kinds of qualities in people that can sort of, to some degree, as safe as you can make it, safeguard their their bet? Because it's all a hunch, right? Right. I think that the two most important things that uh, that they they need to look for in hiring are a sense of purpose. Does this person, is this person purpose-driven? Because if they're not, they're going to be fickle. They're just going to go from one thing to the next to the next. They're going to be a rolling stone that never gathers any anchoring. They never be, they never set down roots anywhere. So do they have a sense of purpose? Is purpose and meaning important to them? And if so, what does that company that's doing the hiring, what what do they offer 
their people in the way of meaning and purpose through the company's true value to its customers and through the utilization of the talent of the people who work in that company. When you get that alignment between uh, talent that's purpose-driven and a company whose value to society or to its customers is purpose-driven, then you've got robust employees, employees that are going to be passionate and engaged. The other piece is their teachability around collaboration skills. Are they, are they willing to learn ways of collaborating on behalf of productivity that they've probably never been taught before, even if they went to a school that supposedly emphasized collaboration? Because collaboration in business is really different from what's being taught in schools around collaboration. Oh, man. Thank you for answering such a, like a grandiose question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not an easy one to address. I realized that, but I couldn't help myself. It was like the moment, the passion, and, and just how important these things are, yeah. especially to business owners right now. Hey, don't uh, help it, yourself. You're asking great yeah. questions. <laughs> it, it, if I may, if I may, you know, when we talk about collaboration, we talk about joint ventures, we talk about that's like the backbone of what businesses support. And it gets missed way too often, right? I mean, the best structures that you'll ever find in business are the ones that are really plugged in, community driven. They're plugged in pretty deep. They have lots of strategic partners. They have lots of like joint venture pieces and parts that they're pulling from all the time. And those are the businesses that really nail it down. They get it right. I've seen it for years. And that's why every one of my companies revolves around that exact model right there is, you know, lots of strategic partnerships, um, you know, lots of JV deals creating a massive community and network around you because your network is your net worth. I don't care what anybody says. It's an absolute true statement overused yes. or not, um, yes. but it absolutely is agreed. And those are the things we need to like, make sure don't get lost in translation to the up and coming business owners, because I see it all the time. They're so hyper-focused on, I got to run Facebook ads or I got this, and that is not the path, right? It's not oh, the path to wealth. That's it's sure. totally not the path because that's <laughs> that's the tail wagging the dog, right? Uh, you know the the order is dream, strategy, tactical decisions, implementation. Mm. That's yeah. that's the sequence, and if tactics are running strategy or replacements for strategy, a business will not thrive. Strategy is what makes it clear to the tacticians what kinds of tactics are needed in order to implement the strategy. So, you know, starting with Facebook ads is out of sequence. Facebook mm. ads are either in service to uh, optimal manifestation or, or achievement of the strategy that is has been adopted to achieve the goals or it's throwing spaghetti against the wall, which is chaotic and inefficient. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. People have a, they have hour long conversations about ad spend and, and what, what it should be. And it's, 
Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you know, <laughs> uh, do you have a do you have a community of buyers who are actually passionate about the product? Is your product solving a real problem? And so all of those things really matter. And then by then, ad spend should really only supplement what you're doing and not actually be the driver of what you're doing. Right. Uh, and and not only is there a community of buyers, but where do they hang out? And inside of that, where do they look when they're actually looking to buy, which is not always identical to where they hang out? Oh, so true. true. So true. Man, okay. So now that we've now that we've established this, if if it's in doubt, I, I can't imagine who's doubting. Where should people get a hold of you if they want to connect and and take things to the next level? Sure. Uh, well, a couple of of possibilities. My main website is drgruder.com. That's d r g r u d e r.com. That's kind of my central switchboard, if you will. I do have two books that are coming out in September of 2022 that really address a lot of the things that we have been talking about today in the business world. They're, they're interconnected books, which is why they're being released uh, with my co-author um, simultaneously. Uh, uh, by the way, you mentioned Bellwether at the beginning. Um, uh, my co-author is also a Bellwether member. Uh, Mark S.A. Smith, and he and I wrote The Nimble C-Suite and The Nimble Company, which are complete frameworks for building successful businesses through restructuring the executive team and uh, and restructuring the, the company culture to flourish in the current marketplace, which is the transformation marketplace. People but customers, the public are are searching for purpose and meaning today. They're buying product services and access that give them, you know, positive experiences in deepening their sense of purpose and meaning or in actualizing their sense of purpose and meaning. That's what people are buying today. They're buying transformation and purpose. And the traditional structures of business are not designed to to create company structures that serve the transformation marketplace. So these are the first books that we know of that provide complete soup to nuts templates for accomplishing that, for doing that restructuring. Wow. And so at drgreeter.com, all that info and all the other links are there. The the links will be there to those books. They they aren't launched yet, so those links aren't there. But you can pre-purchase those books through Amazon right now. They are available for, for pre-sale. Okay. Right on. That's good to know. And uh, are you active on any social channels? Can anybody stay abreast of what you're, what you're working on talking about that way? Yeah. If you want to stay up to date on what... Uh, the trouble that I'm making, because really I consider myself <laughs> to be a recovering psychologist and professional troublemaker. You'll find me on all of the major networks, uh, primarily LinkedIn, secondarily Facebook, but I'm on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and et cetera. Right on. Okay. I, I love that. I love that. 
Um, and we've asked a lot of a lot, a lot of questions regarding takeaways. So I think uh, I think I'll I'll head towards the grand finale in the sake of time. But I want to make sure I check in with Jason. Anything before we go there? Let's roll into that grand finale. All right. So drum for, roll, please. Yeah, uh-huh, there it is. Yes. Are you, are you gonna beatbox? Come on. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, for 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 a million points, the the grand finale question is. Uh, if you had your pick of the litter at any point in place and time in the world, you could invite anybody to this conversation today, like to have been able to sit, listen in, maybe even contribute. Who would you have chosen for that and and why? Oh, my. Well, <laughs> a lot of people come to mind. Given that uh, a lot of your viewers are U.S. based, I think even yeah. though you've got an international audience. Is that, is that fair? Uh, yeah. yeah, fair so, enough. We, fair or, enough. Or, or do you want, cause we're I mostly, could... we're mostly us based. Yeah. Okay. Well, given that, and given the turmoil that the United States is in and the rest of the com- uh, the rest of the world is actually in as well. The person that I would, uh, recommend, I, I, I would actually recommend a panel of two. I would recommend Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. Oh, yeah. Because they would bring people back to the foundational principles of what creates a free society, what creates freedom, and what societies, how societies need to function at the intersection of preserving individual freedom and promoting the common good simultaneously rather than one of those two things canceling out the other. And I think that if we were to interview the two of them together, the wisdom and the insight that they would provide would get us back on track today. I cannot argue with you that having the founding fathers on would be a fundamentally successful conversation in getting a lot of people to reframe the way that they're viewing our current circumstances, because it is how we're viewing things that is making uh, the world what it is. It's a terrible feedback loop, as they say, and yeah. which is why it is a transformation marketplace, because everyone is leaning towards finding that. And yet we don't have the words for it. We don't exactly. have the we don't have the words for what we're trying to look for and contribute to and be part of. But I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I'm very grateful that you addressed all the strange and out of this world questions that I was asking, which I was holding back, man. I was like, I don't want to take it too far, but that's also (laughs) an opportunity for a second conversation. So thank you so much. Uh, I'll let Jason take us away uh, as he always does. I think before I do that, I think if the founding fathers, all of them were on here, they would, we'd have some WTFs. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) No, no doubt about that. But uh, that's another conversation. Uh, (laughs) uh, Anyway, well, yeah, thanks for being here, David. Really appreciate it. Um, And uh, I like to always say, you know, we all got the same amount of hours every week. And uh, thanks for taking taking a couple and spending with us and sharing some of that knowledge up there in that brain housing group you got there uh, with (laughs) with our. audience and there was a lot to unpack and take from that so probably need to listen to this one twice so uh, (laughs) probably for sure so anyway thanks for being here brother 
Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the War Room Roundtable with your hosts, Jason Miller and Philip Lanos. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advisement on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates. And always remember, if you can dream it and believe it, then you can go achieve it. We'll see you in the next episode.